Hi guys, my name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey, welcome back to another episode. I am still counting down to Christmas. If you're listening to this on Monday, we are 16 days away. I'm so excited. It's my favorite time of year. So please just let me have my moment in January. (laughs) We can restore factory setting. However, guys, listen, this past week, I hope you've been fantastic. On my end, I've just been pushing safe 24-7. My projects, I've talked about it in the last two episodes. We're fundraising to be able to take survivors of rape through free group therapy and if you are one of the people who has shared about my project donated towards it imagine thank you um i do not think there are any words that can best describe how appreciative i am of your support so far 352 people have donated and we have raised 333,000 kenya shillings 955 bob i am so excited because we are really close to be able to do one cycle of the program we're fundraising to be able to take three groups of survivors through the program so we're close to be able to take one group through which is just amazing and also what's amazing is that it's individuals who have been donating so people are good people are good thank you thank you thank you to everybody donating and oh my god i almost forgot so we have a fun new way of fundraising the safe 247 merchandise yep i'm gonna put the link to it in the description box but i teamed up with a kenyan artist called kelvin jeru he designed this beautiful oh my god this beautiful art piece just his interpretation of safe 247 And then I teamed up with Creator T, which is a company based here in Nairobi. And through them, we have put that art piece on t-shirts, sweatshirts, and tote bags. They look so dope. So dope. In the description of this episode, you'll find a link to the merchandise. Check it out. You can buy it as a Christmas gift for someone. Hey, (laughs) you've got 16 days. (laughs) Oh, man. But away from my week, I remember a couple of episodes ago, I was telling you about how my relationship with my late mom was so real and so open. I remember when I was 15 years old, bringing up the sex talk with my mom. Yeah, it was me who initiated it. I don't remember many of the questions that I asked, but one that I did was I asked her if the first time you have sex, Is it painful? And imagine my mom didn't start asking me funny questions about, okay, why are you asking about sex, Connie? What's happening? She didn't dismiss me and tell me to face my books. Like she was very open and she was like, people's experiences are different. There can be a bit of discomfort. There can be a bit of pain. Like she didn't hold back. And at the time I was in this school doing my IB. So IB is like form five, form six. Yeah. And the school I was doing it at is an all boys school from class one to form four. So there are only girls in these two years. And a girl a year ahead of me got pregnant. And the school just went into chaos. Like it was just madness, especially for us few girls. 
So one of the things that happened was all of us girls. And at that time, yo, me, I used to like big earrings. Like, okay, I still like big earrings to date, actually. <laughs> so I, I used to wear huge earrings to school. I was in a bangle phase. So like both my arms were full of bangles. You could literally hear me approaching before you see me. <laughs> because of all the jewelry I had on. So we were all put in this room. First, we were told that we are not allowed to hug our fellow male students. Yeah, we couldn't hug them. Hello. <laughs> and then we were told how we shouldn't be wearing big earrings or bracelets anymore. Um, you know, the length of our skirts because we're giving the male students edges. And even though I was, what, about 15, 16 at the time, I was just like, this is some BS. Like, <laughs> I'm not understanding how my bangles have led to this, you know, or how my bangles lead to edges. I'm not really understanding this point. It was so perplexing for me at, the, at that time. And then the other thing they did was to make sure they screened these STD videos to us students, the students in IB. And so these videos were basically like graphic images of people suffering from various STDs, so your herpes, etc., etc. After those screenings, and it was mandatory for you to, by the way, watch these videos. After those screenings, I remember not having learned anything about STDs. The only thing I left those rooms with was that I was petrified and traumatized and that I just didn't want any male around me. So I hadn't learned anything, like no information. I was just scared AF. That's all. It just communicated fear to me. So if I didn't have that open relationship with my mom to be able to talk about STDs, safe sex, touched a bit on contraceptives at the time, I would just be permanently scared. Just permanently scared of men. I just see men as these potential STD transmitting beings because of those the trauma from that video yeah anyway so the reason that i remembered this um conversation is this week on 100 african stories nerima from kenya shares her experience in terms of the sex talk and when that happened for her and contraceptives which is so interesting because she's really heavily involved in working with youth in kenya and currently they're doing a lot of work in trying to be able to sensitize the youth around sexual reproductive health. So she's part of a movement called Formnigani. And basically, Formnigani is just like a creative platform, right? For all Kenyans to express themselves, discuss, like just have conversations and make decisions about contraception. So I caught up with her to be able to find out her own interactions with the sex talk. Was it like mine, very open and raw? How she learned about contraceptives? Because hers is very interesting because she partly grew up in Kenya and partly grew up in the States. So those are two different contexts to grow up in. Different in how they approach sex, how they talk about contraceptives. A hundred African stories. There is no proper life that you live in university as a musician. If I constantly just walked around feeling sorry for myself, I'm never going to get anything done. Uh, there was a bit of frustration in between all of that. I've been breaking my back for this company. Therapy is not for the weak or for the crazy. Stories from Africa.
My name is Nerima Wako Ojiwa, and I am from Nairobi, born and raised. I work in a non-governmental organization. It's called Siasa Place, and we focus on advocacy and fighting for youth rights on several issues in the country. Okay, so right now we're focusing on like sexual reproductive health. So we've been going around the country and talking to youth about what or when was the first time that they had a conversation about sex. And it made me think of the first time that I did. And I started in school, class six. First of all, it was awkward. It was freaking awkward because when you're sitting in class, the boys are making faces, noises, people are giggling. So you just want the class to freaking end. I don't even want to have this talk. But where I really, really had the conversation about contraceptives was when I was now 19 and I was in the U.S., and I had just um, moved there on a scholarship and my sister was living there. So she had picked me from the airport and it was literally maybe two days later. And she's like, we need to put you on birth control. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, but I'm not even doing it. She's like, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. You've probably not met any boys yet. I don't want to know, but we're putting you on birth control. I was shocked. I guess, one, I didn't realize how easy it was to access, um, first in the U.S., just to go and get pills. And then, two, I was happy that I had my sister who just laid it out there, and she allowed me to feel comfortable, because that was something that we don't even talk about. It's so hush-hush. Even at home, it's difficult, too. And then you're viewed as that's the bad girl, Yanni. She's already, she's like 19 and she's already doing these things. And so no one talks to you as if it's a part of life and planning and process. And no one gives you that view. I thank her for even having that conversation with me as a first year. Being able to plan and see things differently from then. So in high school, I was, I'm very tomboyish. So I wasn't in that group of girls. So there was a group of girls or a clique of girls who knew everything. They knew everything about boys, about concerts, about how to talk to boys, about what to do with boys. And I was just an awkward, awkward kid. I was never really invited in that circle, even though I knew they were having those conversations. And so there was one time this girl in my class, she, she made this joke because I'm really skinny. And she was like, if you, if you drink more milk and have more boys touch your boobs, they'll grow bigger. And I was like, what? <laughs> she was like, we all know you're not messing with boys because... I'm ever gonna get married because I remember going home and telling my mom I don't think I want kids like I don't think I want kids because if it's a process like someone has to like touch me like I was just not, I was just not understanding I think for a very long time I would say that's what just kept me from having those sort of relations at that age I was just so focused on studies so I wasn't in that clique of girls. And I can't even imagine the other myths and stories that, that they had in that group. I was just glad I didn't belong in it. <laughs> in the States, it, it changed drastically because in the States, it's so open and liberal. 
um, I realized that there was just so much that I didn't know. And women there, my friends there, were so open. They were so open about their relationships. They were so open about their escapades, about their boyfriends, what they experiment with, what they like, what they don't like, what you should try, what you should um, eat, what you shouldn't eat. And I was just shocked because now when you come from, from a culture where there's, there's no talking at all to one where there's over-talking, it can be overwhelming because you're like, so where am I? Uh, what, who am I? And you begin to measure like, what do I want? What do I like? And just finding that balance. And I found myself mainly engaging with other students who are African and feeling similar. Like my friend Nina, she was from Congo. And so I clicked with her a lot. And, and we would just giggle and talk about these things. And it would be the smallest of things, not only just sex, to even the first time wearing a tampon. To I remember we had a huge debate in Walmart in this aisle where she was like trying to get pads and I was like, let's try tampons. And she looked at me like, what? You're going to try that. Are you serious? You're going to try a tampon. And you know, so you would think it's something so small and simple because if you were talking to a 12-year-old in the US, they'd look at you like, that's a silly conversation. So I think it's just about the state's opened me to new areas that I would never normally not experiment with. And even considering like what I just talked about with tampons, they're not easily accessible here. So those are choices that we don't even have in our country and they're expensive. And so I'm talking about things that a lot of young women in Kenya don't even have conversations about because of access. On the pill, I think my fear was um, keeping up every day, having to take one. And I already suck at taking medicines for like five days. So I was like, how am I going to do a month like for, the, for years, you know? And so obviously I didn't do well with the pill. So I ended up, I ended up um, moving to a shot. And then I just, I realized like the shot didn't really work for me because one day I'm in the library studying and I, I just have this outburst where I'm just like wailing and crying my eyes out and I cannot figure out like why am I so emotional? And, and I found out that it was because of the shot. I had to now move again back to the pill, one with less like um, hormones this time. So it's about... Um, navigating. So it's not that the first one that I took was perfect and the second one didn't work and then the third one I was like I found it. It's about um, navigating because I know a lot of my friends who are on the coil and, and for me I was just like I can't, I can't do the coil like I'm, I'm just I, I just it's not for me. I just can't have something stuck in me. And you know and for some people they're like oh yeah it's so much easier I don't have to think about it. You forget about it. It's the best thing for me. And, you know, and for some people, it's the patch. I was joking with my best friend and how uh, one, a friend of ours has started to lose her hair. So we're like, okay, so maybe it's the patch. And it was. So she changed. So, so for one person, it can work. And for the next person, it doesn't work. I was in the U.S. for seven years. So the core of me that grew, that was my early 20s and my late teens, the person that I became, the people who understood me were not in Kenya. So I had to find new friends and, and new circles almost. I have circles that I can have this conversation with. These are conversations that I have with um, friends that I'm intimate with 
who I feel that they're part of my life. And so we have them because we're now at an age where we're in our early 30s, late 20s, and a lot of them are thinking about the future. They're thinking about, do I want to have kids? I want to have kids now. Do I want to wait and have them later? So that's where this conversation comes in very often. Um, because a lot of us, especially with my friends, we're career women. So the balance is so important. We believe in um, planning. Because at the end of the day, there's so much put on a woman to figure out everything. You figure out work, you figure out the house, you figure out the family. And so if you just have surprises for women, for us, it's difficult when, for me, for instance, to have a child, a surprise child, and then an organization that I'm running. Because now I'll have to think, okay, um, what does that mean for my company? Is there someone who's going to take over temporarily? Does that mean I want to get out of work how long? Is it possible? And so your conversations are completely different. Your balances are different. And I think it's important to, to have partners who understand. So a lot of us, we are married, but our partners are also involved in this conversation. They're part of the process because when you're talking about our family, as much as you're the one who gets pregnant, he's also the father and the balance. And so we believe that it's a community thing. And those are the things that we are changing, the narrative. We've grown up in a society where our mothers did everything, and our fathers didn't even know how to change our diaper. And now we're changing to where our fathers are being more involved. And, and that's something that I think is dynamic. I'm passionate about this conversation because I think the first time I noticed where especially young women have the short end of the stick was growing up would go to my dad's village in Busia, uh, Western Kenya, and I had a friend, Janet, who every Christmas holiday when I would come, she would come over and we would play. So I remember playing with her when I was seven, when I was eight, when I was nine, and then I hit 12. And this time when she came to play with me, she came to play with me, the baby. And I was so confused. Because I was like, you're a child. It got worse. Because now every Christmas, I think to the point I was now 17, I had to go visit her because she had seven kids. And she couldn't leave home because of all the work. She had to clean. She's taking care of a baby. There are toddlers everywhere. She's cooking lunch. She's hanging the clothes. So it, it literally became a life changer. And, and for me, I was like, no, she's not even 18. She can't even vote yet, but she has seven children. And, and that's where now, for Kenya, we have to bring this conversation because we have not only was her life completely changed, she now had to drop out of school, she now had to depend on her husband, she now doesn't have formal education to get work. So in terms of education for, for her children, it means that they would either have to go to schools that provide education for free or low amounts of school fees for them to be able to attend school. And then, of course, when we talk about her children, boy children have a different kind of opportunity when it, as compared to girl children. Because will she do the same thing to her daughters? Uh, because it becomes a cycle. It becomes easier to just have a girl get married off and be able to have finances. 
because of poverty. So when we look at life in that manner and how there are so many young girls in Kenya who are stuck in that cycle, who can't even think of a future in terms of themselves, what they want to be, what they want to do, it just becomes circumstance. It's, this is what I have, this is the situation. And, and I've had too many stories of even friends of mine where they talk about you know, siblings getting married off to survive. Um, and even right now, when we talk about high unemployment, uh, which is an issue everywhere, but in Kenya, when you're hearing young women saying, I'm just going to settle down, I'm just going to try and find someone who can take care of me, I'm just going to look for a sponsor, and that's not the life that we aspire for sometimes. It's just you're forced to pick. And so I think that's what makes me passionate about the issue because it's about you know pushing the government to push more funding toward advocacy on contraception. Right now, it's 90% donor-funded. 90. I think uh, contraceptives are just not understood. And I think that's why there's so much... Um, there's this negative view when it comes to talking about contraceptives. We claim to be a religious country, Kenya. And so a lot of people view taking contraceptives as going against God. We have to change the way people view. And a lot of times you receive a lot of backlash from the church. I was almost roasted on live TV because I had gone against a panelist of mine, a co-panelist of mine, where he said that the church is very supportive when it comes to taking care of young girls, say, who have, like, teenage moms. And I said, actually... The church is the first place a teenage mom is banned from. She, she carries this shame. She's the only one where it shows. Even though there's a teenage dad, perhaps, she's the only one where it's visible. So it's like, I know churches where a young girl has to ask uh, for forgiveness before she can attend the church. Or a single mother has to ask for forgiveness before she can join the choir, before she can stand in front of the church on a podium that exists. But we never, ever look at the man, for instance. He goes scot-free. And, and these are things where when we talk about a community and, and how we view circumstances, it should be as a community as well. Blame should be as a community. She did not get pregnant by herself. And so I think that more and more we're seeing more uh, pastors, for instance, who are taking a, a stand and saying this is not the way that we want to deal with, say, teenage pregnancies. There are churches that have shelters now, or sponsoring shelters. There are more programs that support that. And a lot of people feel, because there's a friend of mine, her name is Buya, where she pushes for universities to have uh, childcare. And a lot of people feel that she's encouraging young mothers. And, and that's, not, that's not the point. The point is there are those who are young mothers, and how can we support them? And then how can we have more healthy conversations in terms of access to information for those who are not yet mothers to have the choice? I think that's the kind of futuristic conversation that the Form Nigani report looks at. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the scenario of Uwakilishi, which is the futuristic utopian scenario mm -hmm. where you're given all the information and you're given all the access to contraceptives and you as a young person makes that choice for yourself, other than having this guilt where there are some counties or like the states in our country where 
they have health uh, facilities open after dark so that young mothers or teenage moms don't have to be seen going for their clinics because they feel like it's such a shame or having desks where they're youth friendly so that you can ask this information about contraceptives without a nurse on the other end looking at you like, this is a conversation for married couples. Are you married? Young people should feel free to be able to have access to that information. Okay, so in my line of work, when, when we talk about contraception with young men, they are open to it until they hear male contraception. And then they're like, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, taking something that can affect me. I don't know about that, but that's something that women have been dealing with uh, for decades. I think that at least we're having the conversation. I think it's a beginning, other than them feeling that that's a woman's thing. Uh, that's not for me. That's not for me to be involved in. That's women's stuff. There will be some men who are open to it, but there are very few in terms of taking contraception. My call to action is for young people to demand more. Um, you know, our constitution is so progressive, and the fact that it gives access to health services, every standardized, like every young person or every citizen has access to health care. It's supposed to, standardized health. But somehow... Contraception is not included in that access to healthcare. But why? Um, considering that the majority of the population is below the age of 35, 18 to 35, that's childbearing age. So it should be, and it should be a conversation. So even in institutions, I know as far as they go, some of them will provide, let's say, free condoms, and that's as far as they go. But they can do more than that. The more young people know, uh, the more they can demand for their rights and the more they should be vocal about it. We can't be shy about these issues anymore. Catch our next African stories in the next episode. So fun fact, when I went to record Nerima at her office, she works in the same building my late mom used to work in when I was 7, 8, 9, 10 11 yeah those years okay well from before but i remember going there when i was around seven eight so walking into the building was like going back in time everything is like the same <laughs> even the lifts even the lifts but you know narima's story there was the point where she spoke about her friend in busia that was really traumatic for me like 17 and having seven kids as in not being able to vote but you're a mother of seven it really just helped me understand also why Nerima is very passionate about this conversation, why she's involved in Form Nigani. So Form Nigani basically is like Kenyan slang for what's the plan. So it's this creative platform where young people are just coming together to have like convos, um, have discussions, make decisions around contraceptives. And they really link the lack of access to knowledge, the lack of access to the actual contraceptives to other problems that we are facing in Kenya. And it's really driven by young people because like they've had think tanks in Nairobi and in Bungoma where young people just come together and talk about, okay, so we have this problem. We don't have access to this conversation. A, we are not having real raw conversations on it. And also the access to contraceptives is a bit limited. So how do we sort that out? And there's a point because they have this report. If you go to form Nigani, 
kenya.co.ke i'll link it in the podcast description in case uh, spelling is <laughs> not your forte don't worry i got you and there's a point in the report where they are looking at what does kenya look like in 2030 if everyone had access to info access to contraceptives if this conversation wasn't a taboo topic it's a very creative glimpse into the future so what would that look like for young women what would it look like for young men what it would it look like for our country as a whole what things would change so that you actually start seeing yo these issues are very interlinked to other things that we complain about on a daily as Kenyans. So yeah, make sure you check it out. But now I'm also all of this talk about people's first interaction with the sex talk. I'm very interested to know what that was like for you. Obviously Narima has shared hers. Mine was very real and honest with my mom. I asked my husband and he said, "Yo, mine was in class 6. We were just shown diagrams of the reproductive system of men and women." and that was it. So I'm just wondering, when did you have the sex talk? And did it include conversations on contraceptives and the various options? Or was it just fear being induced? Like were you also locked in a room to watch these videos that were just so graphic and it wasn't really about passing on information? So I'd really like to know how the sex talk, the first sex talk you had How was it for you? You can hit me up on our Insta page which is Legally Clueless Podcast. And that's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.